Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Heather. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And I want to remind you about our very special tours to the UK. In 2017, we'll be doing tours focusing on the Evensong experience. The Evensong service comes from Cranmer's Book of Common Prayer from the mid-16th century. It's been dubbed the atheist's favorite service because it requires so little and it gives so much. It's simply divine choral music sung in some of the most historic chapels, abbeys, and cathedrals in England. We'll be spending 10 days visiting places like Cambridge, Oxford, Bath, the Cotswolds, Winchester and Windsor with walking tours, free time to explore, and then gathering back each afternoon for the Evensong service if you choose to attend. It will be 10 days of beautiful countryside, historic cities and villages, and so, so much music. I invite you to go to englandcast.com tours for full itinerary and pricing information. Again, englandcast, E-N-G-L-A-N-D-C-A-S-T, englandcast.com slash tours. Thanks so much, and now to the show. Hello, and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast. I'm your host, Heather Tesco. As we get started here, just a quick reminder that if you like this podcast, please rate it in whatever service you use to listen to it, whether it's iTunes or Stitcher or something else entirely. Also, I've just relaunched www.englandcast.com with show notes for each new episode, starting with this one, 
And there's also a sign up form for my monthly newsletter with exclusive content and book giveaways, as well as continually updated resources like reading lists, listening lists for music, and buttons and links to donate if you are so inclined to support this podcast, either by giving a one time tip or making a regular subscription contribution. And both are appreciated. Also, you can now call me on 801-6-TESCO or 801-683-9756 to leave feedback, show ideas, nice thoughts, etc. You can text that number too. It's actually a Google voice number. So again, it's 801-683-9756. And this show is actually thanks to a lovely text that came in from Lindsay on that line. It was the first text I got. And uh, she requested a show that dealt with fashion and sumptuary laws in Tudor and Elizabethan England, which is something that I get requests for a lot. So it's about time we did something with this. So there's a lot of information on how people dressed through pictures and paintings, but fabrics and items of clothing themselves don't really survive that well for 500 years. Not only would time wreak havoc on organic materials, but also clothing was constantly being reused. So an old dress might be cut up into a pillow or used for curtains or something like that. So we don't really have the original items of clothing to be able to look at, but we can tell a lot about fashions, as I said, from paintings, from accounts and financial notes, and also from writings. For example, in Utopia, published in 1516, Thomas More described the fashions of his ideal mythical country. Quote, they have no tailors or dressmakers, since everyone on the island wears the same sort of clothes, except that they vary slightly according to sex and marital status, and that fashion never changes. These clothes are quite pleasant to look at, and they allow free movement of the limbs. They're equally suitable for hot and cold weather, and they're all homemade, this would have sounded really strange to the Tudors, for whom clothing displayed your rank in an age that was really status conscious. So in the mid-16th century, a book titled The Book of the Courtier by Castiglione was making waves as it spread through Europe, giving advice and etiquette lessons to a generation of social climbers. He believed, and he wrote in his book, that any kinds of extremes of fashion should be avoided, and that one should really adapt yourself to the custom of the majority. This was an area where the English certainly did not take his advice. Clothes were so important as a symbol of rank to the English that there were laws, called sumptuary laws, that dictated what people were supposed to wear in really great detail. In 1533, for example, a law passed stating that you needed to have an income of above 40 pounds a year in order to wear any silk velvet at all, even a hat. If you had an income of 200 pounds a year, the equivalent of a knight or a son of a lord, for example, you could wear a gown of silk velvet. Only noblemen could wear scarlet, crimson, or blue silk velvet. Sumptuary laws weren't actually new to the Tudors. When Henry VIII called his first parliament in 1510, they passed a sumptuary law which built on an earlier act of 1463 and another in 1483. And then Elizabeth, in her turn, built on these acts as well, citing, quote, the excess of apparel 
and the superfluity of unnecessary foreign wares, unquote. And in 1559, she put the responsibility of ensuring that the laws were enforced in the hands of the magistrates. These laws were important to keep the class system going. It's really important to have a clear distinction between groups if being upper class is really going to mean something. And it was during the 16th century that the middle classes really began to take hold and you saw signs for the first time really of upward mobility. And even within Henry's own cabinet, men like Cromwell could rise through education from being lowborn to being a person who, for all intents and purposes, could actually run a kingdom. It was important to the nobles to ensure that the up-and-comers were kept in their place. And also, if you did make it, you really wanted to flaunt it and show off your good fortune and your hard work if you made it to the upper class. And finally, the laws also ensured that there were fewer imports and foreign fashions coming in, which tried to support English commerce. If you broke the sumptuary laws, you were fined and you could face jail time of up to three months. But it could be really difficult to enforce the laws. For example, when Elizabeth tried to stop neck ruffs on clothing from becoming excessively large, the Lord Mayor had criticized a man named Mr. Hewson, the son-in-law of the Lord Chief Baron, for wearing, quote, excess of ruffs in the open street, unquote. Mr. Hewson refused change, and the Lord Mayor pressed him. The Lord Chief Baron was so upset that the Lord Mayor was forced to write a letter to the Lord Treasurer asking for help in mediating the argument. I'm not going to go into the details of the sumptuary laws here, and they were in fact really detailed. But in the show notes for this episode on the website, I've linked to a few sites that outline the laws have a flow chart on one of them. The Tudor wiki has a flow chart. And if you want more detail, you can check those out. So what kinds of clothing did the average Tudor or Elizabethan wear? Obviously, fashions changed over the course of the 16th century, just like fashions from 100 years ago changed till now. So you can't make a blanket statement about the 16th century. For example, Spanish headdresses and certain French fashions changed as support for France or the empire changed. But in general, there are certain pieces of clothing that were universal. Starting with the first layer, both men and women wore underwear made of linen. It was an easy cloth to wash, and so it was good for the first layer of clothing. The underclothes would be a shirt for a man and a smock for a woman. Men also wore linen drawers, though they were not generally worn by women until the 19th century. Some people mentioned bodices or corsets for women, and an archaeological dig recently turned up something that resembled a modern-day bra, but it's hard to know for sure exactly what those undergarments looked like. The next layer for women would have been a woolen kirtle. It was similar to a dress with short sleeves or longer laced sleeves that could be rolled up for work. Finally, on top of that, you would have the gown, which was like a second dress worn in sort of a similar way to how we would wear a coat. For very high-ranking noblewomen, she would wear her best gown all the time, and all that was seen of her kirtle was the front. And if you imagine the way 
the portraits show the women at this time. I've put some actual portraits in the show notes on the website. So you can see this effect. It's generally the gown that goes over this kind of underdress. And you see that coming out through the front of the clothing. So for men, getting dressed was more complicated than today as well. First, you needed your hose or your breeches, which would go from the waist down to the knees. Then nether hose, which are stockings, they would cover your legs down from the knees to the feet. You could have garters to keep the hose from falling down. And then above your hose came a doublet, which was sort of like a jacket. Sometimes you would wear a jerkin over the doublet and possibly even a gown or a long coat over the jerkin in the earlier part of the century, though this was later replaced by a cloak. And of course, the famous, or at least going by Henry VIII's portraits, codpiece. It was worn by every class of man, rich and poor, and it was simply a decorated flap that fastened by means of laces to the upper hose to allow for easy access, sort of like a zipper today. The next thing worth talking about is laundry and general cleanliness. You know, we tend to assume that people were dirtier then, and certainly by our standards with hot running water on demand, they would have been. But in general, cleanliness was something that was praised and was a goal. When Henry VIII died in 1547, his closet had 33 linen shirts. And wills show that in Essex, particularly at the end of the 16th century, when shirts were mentioned in wills, there were usually between three and six, which meant really that each person would have enough to see them through a week wearing a shirt just once or twice before laundering it. So, you know, not that much worse than we are today. And like I said before, most people wore wool during the 16th century, even wealthy people. It wasn't just a cheap fabric that was worn just by the lower classes. People would wear it for their petticoats and their undergarments, especially since it was really warm and soft. And there was a great variety of wool on the market. So you could have all different types of wool from really expensive to then there was broadcloth, which was an inexpensive option for liveries. And also then there was kersey, which was a cheaper wool worn by poorer people. In addition to the kinds of fabrics you wore, the colors that you wore also showed the kind of class to which you belonged. So bright colors were really expensive to dye, as were very dark colors like black. The best, most expensive dyes would have an even color throughout the fabric. Most people wore clothing that was much less colorful. Though black was the most popular color for most men for their special holiday clothing, it looked formal, but it would hide dirt, so it was completely practical, just like today's black suits, which look distinguished and formal, but still allow you some leeway if you accidentally write on yourself, like I seem to always do, or spill your coffee, or do otherwise klutzy things. The first shopping mall of sorts was called the Royal Exchange, and it was built by a famous London mercer, Thomas Gresham. It was a place where merchants could meet up to make deals. It was also where the most fashionable Elizabethans went to shop. It opened in 1571. Gresham himself was masterful at public relations. So he did something to launch his shopping center, which was really clever. 
Apparently, according to John Stowe's survey of London, he wanted to make sure all the shops were open and bustling when the whole building opened up. So he went to all of the shopkeepers who had already rented shops, and he invited them to take over any empty spaces rent-free for a year. Very clever of him, because then, of course, after the year they had to pay rent. But by then, presumably, the shops were doing a good business, selling lots of hats and dresses and other things, so they could afford it, right? So it's very clever of him. Interestingly, there's still shopping in the building that the Royal Exchange was built at. It's actually on its third building. The first one burned down during the Great Fire of London, and then the second one burned down in the mid-19th century, and the building that's there now was opened by Queen Victoria. And it's used mostly for offices, but uh, there are some kind of luxury brands that are in there as well. So it's really cool that the first shopping center kind of still exists. Moving on to what I consider to be a most important piece of clothing, shoes. (laughs) What girl doesn't love shoes, right? In the earlier 16th century, shoes were more like bedroom slippers compared to modern shoes. So the soles could have been made either of leather or velvet, and they didn't have a built-up heel to them. So that started to change in the late 1540s and 50s. They started to be made with a low cork wedge, which ran the length of the shoe and then was sold with leather. In 1595, the first warrant for making shoes with a high heel and arch appears for Queen Elizabeth. And since they were lightweight, the shoes were generally inexpensive And you would wear through several pairs in an average year. In the 1560s, Elizabeth was going through about 40 pairs of velvet shoes each year. That's a lot of shoes. On the other end of the body, you needed something for your head. Women would always have their hair tied up in some sort of bun or braid, unless it was a really special occasion, like Queen Elizabeth left her hair down for her coronation. But most always you would have your hair tied up. And then you would have something to cover your heads. So men would wear some kind of cap. For the wealthy, it would be made of silk velvet and decorated with ornaments. Most were made of wool, though. For ladies, headgear was generally made of linen. And for poorer women, it could almost resemble a baby bonnet. Wealthier women would wear a similar style, but would decorate it with jewels. Then there were also the sort of hoods that we see in the portraits of Anne Boleyn, for example, It would have a stiff front decorated with jewels and gold to frame the face, and then it would have a soft back. In the 1570s, tall hats came into fashion, and there were a variety of fashions of headgear available. It actually made it really difficult to plan what kind of head wardrobe to bring to court because there was so much, and so you just didn't really know what was going to be in fashion that that particular year, so you kind of had to guess. Jewelry, of course, was also really popular, particularly something called mourning jewelry, which might be a sort of ring, something that would say, remember me, for example. They might also be specific reminders of someone who had died. They would also just be used to remind the wearer that death was never far away and one should always be prepared. It was really popular to have jewelry set with skulls or skeletons, And that was a good reminder of how much you needed to keep on God's good side, really. Henry VIII had a gold ring set with a death's head. 
It's also, it's interesting to note with jewelry that many times the gemstones weren't even real. Some of Elizabeth's own pearls may have been fake ones made out of glass. And speaking of glass, glass with colored foil behind it was often used to imitate precious stones. The look of this jewelry is opulent and the style is very grand. Understated elegance wasn't really their thing. Men and women alike wore gold chains. Even the attendants of wealthy men would have great gold chains. The general idea seemed to be to wear as much jewelry as possible, and even items like buttons could be made with precious metal for really formal occasions when you wanted to show off. Jewelry could also be used for religious reasons, obviously, but in addition to things like crosses that would convey your beliefs, it could also be used to hide your beliefs. For example, once rosaries were outlawed during Elizabeth's reign, which we talked about on an earlier episode about Catholics, people used to wear these things called rosary rings, which had studs for prayer and could be used in the same way a rosary would be used. (laughs) One of the funniest items of clothing I found was a jeweled fur, which was a small pelt of a small animal, which was made into a piece of jewelry was ornamented with stones and chains. Henry VIII had two made of sable, one of which had a clock set in its head and had paws of gold with sapphire claws. The other one was set with turquoise, rubies, diamond and pearls, and it had a ruby tongue. Sounds so gross. (laughs) They would be carried the way you would carry a pet, or worn slung over your shoulder. In the show notes on the website, I have a link to a a Pinterest board where there's a lot of examples on these jeweled furs, and they are definitely worth checking out. Keeping your furs looking good was really major work. One housewife manual from the end of the 14th century instructs the best way to care for furs. If your fur had become hard and stiff, you should sprinkle wine over it by spurting it from your mouth and then throw flour over that. Then leave it to dry for a day and rub it out. Not a lot of fun, if you ask me. It's clear that being fashionable at court or really in any of the middle to upper classes in Tudor and Elizabethan England was an expensive prospect. And many people incurred large debts to pay for their finery. It's not just modern people who have issues with credit card debt at Topshop or H&M. Not that I know anyone who has had that problem when she was just out of college 15 years ago, but I digress. If the whole point was to get noticed at court, then you had to shell out the money to make sure that happened. Take the case of Arthur Throckmorton, who came to court in 1583. He had to sell part of his land and borrow to fund his new wardrobe, and he was still paying interest on the loan years later. Of course, if you had a good career out of it, then it was a worthwhile investment. But just like today, if you go out and buy a bunch of suits for interviews and you spend a ton of money on designer clothes to make an impression somewhere and it doesn't get you anywhere, you could be ruined. One final note on clothing is cross-dressing. Of course, I take it for granted now that I can wear jeans and trousers, but obviously it wasn't always seen as appropriate, just like it's still not particularly accepted for men to go around wearing skirts. Although I have to say they are really much cooler in the summer and I highly recommend it. 
In the theater, for example, women were not allowed to be on stage, and so young men and boys played the female roles, dressing for the part. This actually raised a lot of concerns about men potentially falling in love or having lustful feelings towards the boys and the young men. And then there were men who were playing women who cross-dressed as a man, like in The Merchant of Venice, where Portia plays a man to act as a lawyer. Women would dress as men in real life for reasons that would include avoiding rape and being able to travel alone or to practice a profession like Portia, or simply to have adventures. So there was this one famous woman later on in the 17th century, early Stuart period. She was named Mary Firth, and she dressed as a man and walked around London smoking, drinking, and horror of horrors, she appeared on stage. She did get married, but interestingly, she acted as both a fence, so she bought stolen goods, and she was also a pimp. So she had a really colorful life. She had to go to court for this and was accused of insanity and was eventually put in a hospital, but then let out of a hospital. So she had a a very colorful life, Mary Firth, and she walked around London in her trousers, smoking and drinking just like a man. For the most part, offstage cross-dressing was viewed as a prank, and the punishments were often mild. Mostly, it was just to embarrass you. So one woman in 1578 was apparently required to ask for her father's forgiveness before she got communion. (laughs) So that's it for this week. The book recommendation is Pleasures and Pastimes in Tudor England by Alison Sim. And I'll put a link up on the site and on the Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash Englandcast. And again, there you can contact me, send me show ideas, or just say nice things. And again, you can get all of the book recommendations, show notes, sign up for the mailing list, etc. at www.englandcast.com. I've also started doing regular quick segments on different aspects of Tudor history on YouTube, and I call it the Tudor Minute. There's a link on both the site and the Facebook page, or you can just go to YouTube and search for my name. The next episode I do in two weeks will be on how the Tudors built England up as a sea power. When Henry VII took the throne from Richard III at Bosworth Field, he inherited under 10 ships. That was the Navy. And even fishermen rarely went out, out of sight of land. But within 100 years, England had become this massive naval power that would be able to defeat the mighty Spanish Armada. We'll talk about how that transformation happened. Thanksgiving is coming up soon for the Americans out there. We're hosting an American Thanksgiving for our Spanish friends here in Andalusia, and I'm so excited to share this most awesome of holidays with people, although finding a turkey has definitely been a challenge. But I'm grateful to each of you for listening and for bearing with me on this podcast as I've taken a lot of hiatuses, but I so appreciate your continued support. I hope you're all having a wonderful start to the festive season, and I will talk to you again in two weeks. Full maiden of me, fair and freight of fond, 
in all this world Fleet you won Bull of blood and of bone Never yet in Houston on Not so many in London